How's it going? Doing well. Thank you. Awesome. So I'm so glad you're here today. Uh, We're going to chat on Unapologetically Black Unicorns, and a lot of people will know who you are, Pat, but why don't you tell folks who maybe they don't know? Yeah, again, my name is Pat Deegan, and I run a a company, but it wasn't always that way. Um, Way back when I was a teenager, 17 years old, senior in high school, I experienced the first episode of psychosis, what got diagnosed as schizophrenia. And um, I was told that I would never be well, that I would have to take high dose antipsychotic medications for the rest of my life, and that I was told essentially to give up all expectations and goals, and that my job was to take pills and take pills and take more pills, but also avoid stress. And how one is supposed to live and avoid stress at the same time is beyond me. Anyway, I call that the prognosis of doom. I felt like that wounding was so profound to be essentially declared existentially in hibernation, right? And I was eventually just had to break out of that prognosis of doom and find my way because I didn't even know the term recovery at the time. But I had an important turning point. First, when I learned that there were things I could do to help myself, because no one ever told me that, Mm -hmm. Uh, imagine that, that I was hearing these distressing voices. But if I put on the old Sony Walkman with a a tape of my favorite band, uh, I was able to distract myself. And that was like extraordinary turning point for me. There are things I can do. And so I decided I'm going to become Dr. Deegan and change the mental health system so no one ever gets hurt in it again. Honestly, those were the words that came (laughs) into my head. But that's what you get to do when you're 18 or 19, right? You get to have that big thought that I'll do it myself. Yeah. Of course, I've been chastened and over, over, and as I've matured, it's I've learned that it's going to take us all working really hard to to turn this boat around. But uh, in any case, that's where I started. And I did get that doctorate in clinical psychology and uh, only to decide that my people were the people on the other side of the desk, the people I wanted to (laughs) hang out with, people coming out of the state hospital. You know, I was like, I just want to put on some dances for folks, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, I found my people, my people found me. And I've never left. And so what I've been doing is carrying a message of hope for recovery around the world. Today, I've got my own company and we build extraordinary tools that can be used by people to support their own recovery and and get them the support so that they can get to the life they want to live, which is what it's all about. Yes, yes. The I, I love talking about um, when people say treatment goals, I say, oh, life goals? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. the, like those goals that they may include treatment, of course, but it's really about the life that a person wants to live, who wants to live just to take a pill. It's, that's not why anybody lives, whether you have cancer or diabetes or a mental health or substance use condition. So the other thing I just love in your story, how you talk about, yeah, take pills and no stress, which is exactly right. Like life itself is stressful. So how do you avoid that and and live life? I was told very much the same thing initially when I got a diagnosis of um, schizophrenia in in particular, and that was, um, yep, you're not going to (laughs) work. You know, you'll always be under the care of someone living with someone who can care and take care of you. And uh, if you do work, it needs to be incredibly low or no stress. And what was so interesting when I work with another psychiatrist is we found that certain types of stress actually help me. Wow. Which who knew, right? Who wants to be stressed? But there are certain types of 
of stress and, and they come with, um, I would say high profile executive level type work where I'm solving really challenging problems and helping people work together towards those problems, which is super wow. stressful, um, actually is like, it makes me tick. And, and tick as in T-I-C-K, not as in T-I-C. So <laughs> just to be clear, yeah, on occasion, I do have the, the other tick, but uh, when it's the stress is like not good. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really interesting um, about the individualistic approach about what it is that becomes, as you say, your personal medicine. And, um, you know, I was just so excited to take your certified personal medicine coaching course and learn more about that. And it just sort of resonated with sort of how I also think about recovery and a lot of people think about recovery. What is that personal thing you can do? Right. So um, the other thing I was really impressed about, which no surprise to me when I saw it. So I'll have you talk a little bit about the certified personal medicine coaching. What is that? But also how you have some things in there that are intentionally around what it's like to be a person of color or a person who is, I hate to say in the minority, so maybe underrepresented from an underrepresented cultural group or other group. What happens when society makes it even doubly or triply hard to do some of the things that you know you might want to do to live with a mental um, health condition and reach your life goals? So can you say a little bit about CPMC? Sure. So um, certified personal medicine coaches are individuals who have taken a pretty rigorous course with me and who is become an expert coach in helping people discover what they can do to get well and be well, what they can do to get the life they want, what they can personally do to change their experience of their challenge and or their distress. And the idea is, is that personal medicines are the things we do. And um, psychiatric meds may be the stuff we take, but if we sit around waiting for psychiatric meds to cure us, we're probably going to have a long wait because that's not how they work. Finding the right balance between any medicine we may take, if we take any at all, and the things we do opens a pathway into recovery for a lot of us. So it's really about, I think we get pretty wounded, uh, Karis, in, in mental health systems, and we're taught to distrust our innards and uh, that quiet, still voice inside of ourselves. We, we, we ignore that. Who knows? It could be a hallucination, right? Or, and we're encouraged to look to others, family members, but mostly the professionals for the answers to our lives. And what personal medicine, the real power of it comes from is when we help an individual discover, no, I can look within me. There's a wisdom within me. There's a healer within me. And if I can tap into that, then I have a whole new dimension of myself to cultivate. And so I think that that's the real gift here. It's saying that basically that our resilience as human beings doesn't end once we get a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that idea. And I think that's a very forgotten piece in mental health services. Yeah. Professionals forget to ask, what do you already know how to do that helps? Yes, yes. Oh, like snaps, claps, all of that kind of stuff to say. Well, of course, I'm in total agreement. I am a CPMC, right? A certified (laughs) personal medicine coach. Um, And, you know, I really appreciated having, um, I don't know if you need to talk a lot about the cards, but in some of the cards and work, being able to name the oppression 
that sometimes I have to name. I mean, I have to name um, oppression that exists as a person of color. I have to um, name it and then figure out, okay, what am I going to do about that so that I can move forward on my recovery journey? Um, And being able to offer that, sometimes there just isn't anything that speaks to that lived experience of having a mental health condition and being a person of color and being LGBTQ. And, you know, there's, there's nothing there. It's kind of like a one size fits all, but this isn't one size fits all. So can you, can you say something about that? Like what you've done there? Yeah. And I, and I, and I'll speak as, you know, an ex-patient, a psychiatric survivor, um, as a lesbian. And I want to just say that people think that what we're recovering from is mental illness. And I'm like, no, no, no. What we're recovering from very, very often is the adverse effects of psychiatric care sometimes. And we're also recovering from various forms of oppression and trauma. And that's so often the recovery journey is involved in. And so it only made sense. I didn't have to like adhere to a medical model framework at all in developing personal medicine. Instead, it was like, you know, We're encouraged to believe that all of our problems are in our heads, right? But when I walk down the street in um, a country on a beach with with my lover and we're walking hand in hand and I'm really, quote, paranoid about getting murdered, that's not paranoid. That's good self-care. Yes. And and that that has an effect. It has a toll. We went on our honeymoon uh, to Madeira. I had to give a talk in Portugal. So we're like, let's take our little honeymoon. And uh, it's it's a very kind of homophobic place. We didn't know that. Mm. (laughs) But um, it was really something to know how to, we're always trying to navigate that space. And it's like, wow. And so for me, it was natural to have to include the oppression cards to remind people that the problems are not always in our head. A lot of times it's in the situations we find ourselves and let's own that and know that we don't have to be alone with it, that we can reach out. Oh yeah. It just speaks so powerfully about that recognition that look to be, um, and I would call it hypervigilant or vigilant because we have to exist in worlds where we may not be the majority, where people may not understand and that is not my illness, that's society, that is not illness, that is your own self-care and self-protection. And what an emotional toll and emotional energy we have to use um, in those situations that maybe other folks don't. So I think that's also something that's really important. But I will say, um, you were doing a talk once, um, I'll just go ahead and say, it was a, it was an Anami NAMI national uh, convention and we had asked you to come and do a keynote. And um, I wanted to make sure to come in and say hi to you. I think I was the president of the board or maybe on the executive committee at the time. I don't recall, but I, but I do recall that I wanted to come and say hi to you well before it was time for you to present. Cause I know right before presentation, like, don't be trying to talk to me. I'm a little on the nervous side. I'm trying to prep. Right. <laughs> so I was like, let me get to her before she gets into that kind of frame. And your slides were up in the ballroom. They were, they were up. Um, I think the first or second slide was up. And I looked up and I thought, oh, wait, is is that Pat's slide deck? Is this the person before Pat? Because up on the screen was, I think it was African-American woman and maybe somebody else with them. I don't remember. All I remember was seeing this big black face up on the screen with words about whatever it was. And I thought, wait, who who's presenting? And they have like people of color <laughs> in their PowerPoint deck. This is amazing. And then I was like, 
wait, no, this is Pat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's very rare. I will walk in or I will sit in a presentation that's delivered by somebody who is white to see diversity in their slide deck. And the slide had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with culture. It was just a slide about whatever. And it happened to show people of color. And the intentionality, Pat, I was just, oh, it's all I can say. It was just so amazing. So how do, how do you, like, how do you do that? How do you, and how do you help other people think about doing that? Well, my sense is that when people are in the audience and I have the privilege of speaking with them, and it is an extraordinary privilege to take 45 minutes of someone's time, that um, I feel very strongly about preparing so that I give my very best effort and never repeat myself the same thing twice, but also to make sure that people in the audience are able to see themselves in the representations that I put up um, on the slides and to, uh, or else how do I expect them to be able to receive anything that I'm talking about? So I make some deliberate efforts and it is intentional, very intentional. I wanna make sure that I have a person you know, in a wheelchair or using some form of assistive technology. I want to make sure that I have a, a gay couple, a trans person. I just, I just want us to be there yeah. because that's, these are my people. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I also like I'll try to avoid like the plague of bright, shiny people that come out of these stock photo things, you know? <laughs> and it's like, no, I want like people that look like the people I love and care about. Right. Yeah. Regularly. Yeah. It is very intentional, but with the idea of we are a people together, we, there are, we are strong ties between us. We speak a language, we share a heart in some ways, and yes, we're different too. And yes. we can just celebrate that and talk. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was really, again, one of the most powerful moments and clearly quite uh, made an impact uh, on me because that was not to age either one of us, but that was years ago. And it still sticks with me because um, it's very rare, even to this day, that I see that happening, that people think about how do I uh, reflect back the people who we are talking about, which is multidimensional, multicultural, you know, all sorts of stuff, and um, not just talk about it, but actually show it in the work. So again, yeah. you know, big, big kudos to that. And even um, stuff, Karis, like class background, and that there's a place. I mean, I, I was very poor, there was, you know, and I didn't have the best clothes for a while. And you know, was so unwell for a while, I didn't brush my teeth, you know, I just didn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so I want those faces too, you know, yeah. just that's real. And that, and it, and there's no judgment in it. It's just like, I yes. walked in those shoes. And I think the work, I think the work is, is driven by um, just a deep love of our people. Yes, yes, it's there, Pat, definitely showing through. And one of the things that, you know, you're doing um, that that's fairly new. And again, one of those huge gaps, I think, in the mental health field is around um, medication. And a lot of times, you know, it's either you take medication or you don't. It's this weird sort of binary thing that really isn't binary at all. And there's not a lot of conversation about well, what does the meaning of medication have for you? What, you know, how does it fit into your life? It's more of a, when a person says no, 
oh, they're not compliant, <laughs> you know, oh, they're not adherent. Um, or if they want to ask about uh, decreasing the medication or coming off medication, it's just like this, no, with like no conversation, like where's the conversation? Um, and so you're doing this thing around medication empowerment, which is yay, and what is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Well, thanks for asking, Karis. I mean, I agree with you. I think that um, people get sometimes really, really stuck. I know I did in mental health systems, stabilized, maintained in a chemical hibernation, going nowhere, doing nothing, but stabled and maintained, not using the ER, not going back to the inpatient success. I say, no, that's a very, very low bar to be in stasis, <laughs> mm. uh, you know, in a chemically induced coma. No, that is not recovery. That's not living the life I want. And too many of our people get stuck in mental health systems for a lifetime in that kind of chemical hibernation. And my thing is we can do better. And we can do better if we were to work toward empowering our peers to have a voice and a choice in their psychiatric care consultation. If we um, help people find the words and recognize that using meds over time has all kinds of challenges. It's not what you said, the binary construct of compliant, non-compliant, adherent, non-adherent. These concepts have been weaponized against us, mm -hmm. okay? You're a bad person. You're non-compliant. You're a difficult patient. We don't need any more of that. What we need is for the mental health system to understand that, yes, meds can be helpful. I used them, and they can be helpful, but they're not enough, and that over time, there are challenges like the meds have changed me in ways I don't like. I'm an artist, the person says, and then I take the meds and maybe I'm able to sleep better at night. But guess what? I've lost my soul and I can't create. That's not a workable solution. That's not the life I want. So medication empowerment is all about these short animated videos that people can use directly and, and also with peer supporters to get the words for and better understand the challenge they're experiencing. I'm not motivated to take meds. Okay, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. I have side effects. Okay, what do we do with that? And then to become empowered to do something about that situation. Yeah. Uh, so it's very exciting work. It's not rolled out yet, but it's on its way. Woohoo. Can't wait. And, and you also talked a little bit about like when we've had conversations about the fact that there is, which I've talked about on the podcast with, uh, with psychiatrists and psychologists, the low representation percentage of psychiatrists and psychologists who are people of color. And so, um, you know, myself, I, I only once had a psychologist who was a person of color. Um, after that, they've all been white. Luckily, <laughs> Luckily, very, very informed. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lucky on, on, in some cases. But uh, for many folks, um, having somebody who looks like them or from kind of a same culture community as them as a psychiatrist or psychologist is very helpful in some of these conversations, especially let's talk about the psychiatrist since that's generally the person who is prescribing the medication. So will medication empowerment help folks who may be even reticent to speak up because they have a psychiatrist or, you know, a provider who's not of the same culture, race as, as themselves? Do you, how do you see it working there? 
Well, I do think that people of color in this country who are working with sometimes exclusively white teams, therapists, case manager, and psychiatrist, um, very often find it difficult to trust a white provider, particularly if they detect that they're being in some fashion profiled, that the white clinician's implicit racial biases have been activated on them and that, what do you do in that situation? I mean, and so that was the question I began to grapple with and I began talking to peers of mine um, who have had those experiences and helping me understand and to deepen my understanding. And then even more important, what does one do about that? You know, so in the short animated video, you can see this little character being racially profiled in a psychiatric consultation. And then literally the little character is put in an animated box, right? Profiled, you know, framed mm -hmm. literally. And then um, how she and her friends begin to uh, get rid of the box that this is real, what has just happened to me. And now what do I do? Mm -hmm. um, and then the worksheet helps people with a strategy, a very concrete strategy of what, what they can do. And basically for that, we took the open the front door framework, which is very helpful uh, when, when we were talking about how to micro resistance against microaggression, right? Mm. Um, and so we modified that framework a little bit for, for the worksheet so that a person has a self-care strategy of after being wounded uh, in that way. And then also what should my next steps be, including finding a new provider if possible. Yeah. Not always possible. And that gets yeah. very tricky. Yeah. But the other part I think that's critical, Karis, is, you know, it's one thing to be an empowered user of mental health services, super important. The other part is there is the educational video for us white providers where we can say, okay, uh, what are my implicit racial biases? How can I uh, learn more about the implicit racial bias test? Take it, learn from it, and then begin a, a lot of, and I, and I lay out a lot of strategies that white folks can use to try to uh, check the, the bias as much as possible at the door. Yeah. And to invite um, people of color that we may be working with to please speak up. And it's a very humbling process to, um, as a white person to go through that um, racial bias and find myself, you know, my scores, oh my gosh. And, um, but it's a, it's a real eye opener, some of the behaviors. So there are yeah. specific ones that I'm really working hard on. For instance, one thing that I'm trying to do you know, really a lot is when I come into a room, even a virtual room, to take inventory of who's in the room, right? And because I think I have a tendency to talk over people of color sometimes. Mm. And so that's not cool. And so finding myself and saying, <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And it's just, I'm growing and it's, it's a yeah. lot of work and I'm, and I'm pleased to do it because um, folks need a chance to just grow too and to speak and to be heard. It's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you're talking about that growth and um, learning journey because that's what this is. And, you know, I like, you know, too, that when folks take the implicit bias test, which I've taken, you know, just as a black person doesn't mean I don't have to take it, that I don't have my own implicit bias about things, right. Is, um, you know, 
you're looking at it. It's you and your personal space. Nobody's looking at it. Nobody's judging you about it. The next step is um, what can you do about it? And um, having some kind of guiding work to help folks versus, oh, here's my score. And now I'm left with it. And I don't know what to do. I think that's really kind of kind of uh, nice to be able to have that and important to have that for providers to think through, okay, now what do I do about it? What are my next steps? And I, I so appreciate, again, you're so intentional about this that, you know, we're both uh, working on uh, columns for um, a journal. The column that I'm working on with uh, Nev Jones is editor, co-editor. You know, we're looking to increase the number of folks with lived experience who have the opportunity to write in a peer-reviewed research journal. And so we're um, looking for lived experience, people of color, and that takes work. And being an editor, which, yeah, good luck to me editing somebody else's work. It's always a little like, I really don't want to like, you know, remember when you were in school and they put the red marks on everything and the teachers and it was just like a horrible feeling. It's like, how many red marks did I have? I don't care what my grade is. How many red marks, you know, because it just is like this, you know, red mark on your soul. You, you sort of suck <laughs> kind of thing. But um, I, I so appreciate though that again, you know, you, you gave a call and and you said, hey, can can we talk about what I do as the editor? You know, I'm, I'm this 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 white woman, I'm an editor, and I might have to edit people of color's work. <laughs> and, the, and and your column is really about lived experience story, the personal story. So now you're editing somebody's personal story. Like, yeah, that feels fun. <laughs> so yeah what is your column and, and what are you we're talking this is just you do so many things I don't know how you have the time but say a little bit about the column and the work you're doing and kind of how you're thinking about that yeah so so the column is called personal accounts and these are short two-page submissions that come in of some aspect of a personal account of something um, that would be of interest to the mental health audience and traditionally has included non-traditional uh, voices, not always, but, but, but sometimes. So uh, what I was finding was that um, I was not getting uh, enough submissions from people of color and wanted to increase submissions. And so I began t- uh, attending Zoom conferences with speaker panels on um, decarcerating mental health and um, really learning tremendous things and going, oh my gosh, here's a person with a story to tell, a personal account. Oh, here's another one. Um, But um, they weren't your traditional academic voice by any stretch, but brilliant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I actively began reaching out and either I got straight out no's, I'm busy and I'll think about it. Once in a while, someone would follow up and we'd chat back and forth and I'd send examples and you know, extend help. One, one person who really impressed me um, sent me in a piece that was quite long, very, very long, very much read like a kind of a stream of consciousness and journal. Mm-hmm. I, of course, thanked this person for the submission and said, discussed it with my co-editor and said, hey, there's really some things that we would want to uh, focus more on here. And the person, when I wrote back, never got back. Mm. radio silence I got Mm. ghosted I was like done (laughs) oh boy I said I really messed this up bad I gotta fuck so I don't repeat this again so oh gosh so I was fortunate enough to seek you out and get great advice uh, from you Uh, I was also um, able to get a uh, consultation with Ruth Shim 
mm-hmm. who is a brilliant um, and an academic, uh, which I'm not, I don't consider myself at all an academic, mm-hmm. but I have learned when a person of color um, submits something to me as a white female editor, um, and the person has not necessarily been published before, that person may have gone through, not absolutely, but may have gone through some um, educational unspoken trauma where you don't use the right words. You don't, you, 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 like you said, all those red marks is what came to your mind, Karis, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what I, I began learning was if I come on like that school teacher with the big, ugly red pencil, going to mark up your work. This I'm um, I'm poking at the at the unspoken trauma in educational systems for people of color. Some not all, but some, and and that I need to come at it in an entirely different way. And what I need to do, and am doing now, is say, um, you know, we would love to accept this. This part here is so good. Let's work together and get you expanding this because. The reality is because of structural racism, racial inequity, people don't trust a white person like me really wants to know, wants Mm -hmm. to hear their voice, wants to invite that voice to the table, not to shape it and distort it, to speak it. Mm -hmm. But it it is interesting because it, it raises the question, it's still an academic journal. Yeah. And because there's, there is rage, that's my word for it. There is rage that goes with oppression too. Mm-hmm. And how much space is there for that? Yeah. You know, the anger, mm-hmm. the rage, because it's not always pretty. It's not always nice. Mm-hmm. So I find it a very challenging position to be in. I think another thing that's super important is, and I know we talked about this, was, was making uh, visual images yeah, part of the publication. Mm-hmm. I'm a very visual, and I think non-traditional voices sometimes just want say it better with the image mm-hmm. or with the help of an image. Yeah, the visual metaphor. Yes. So all of these different ways of thinking about things in order to get folks the opportunity. Yeah. No. I um. You know. I'm. I'm very passionate about this. Again. You know many, many people have had that educational trauma, (laughs) right? Women can have it with, you know, math and how many, we know that that is a a very prevalent thing uh, for women, regardless of color and and, and math and math teachers calling on the boys and not calling on the girls and all that kind of thing. I do remember (laughs) distinctly a teacher giving me a very poor grade on a writing assignment. This was in college. And it, it really devastated me because actually um, writing and use of language was something that I excelled at uh, thanks to my mom and dad, especially my dad who's a communications major, right? Um, Being able to, to write and to express ourselves. And I really felt that this teacher was like, no, you're not supposed to express yourself that well. So because you're expressing yourself that well, I'm actually gonna give you a C and say that you didn't express yourself well at all. And I had my father read the paper and he's like, what the hell? (laughs) I had other people read the paper. They were like, what the hell? And really for me, that was shut down central, which then led to a a love-hate relationship with writing. That's really what happens with me with writing. So that when I turn out something, after I look at it, I'm like, well, Dag, how did I turn that out? I really suck at writing. No, I don't suck at writing. It's stuck in my head that this silly professor 
you know, wanted me to think I suck at writing. Thank you, gaslighting. Did a great job. Uh, the, the, the light is still lit, unfortunately. So yeah, on, on one occasion I got so stuck, but I wasn't doing well either. I had somebody who was willing to think well outside the box and said, well, let's sit and talk about the paper. Um, and I had actually drawn the whole paper in one drawing and I was able to talk about the paper by showing them the drawing. And at the end, they said, okay, well, we're done. And I'm like, yeah, but what do I do now? And he goes, nothing, you got an A. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, this is in grad school, right? I said, how did I get an A? I didn't write anything. He said, no, you demonstrated, you knew the material, um, not verbally and in the drawing. It was very clear that, and it was, some of it was written in Hebrew, it was in um, when I was in seminary. Um, and so he's like, and the Hebrew was actually, cor- actually, cor- it was correct. Um, it was, it was right. So, so everything was a go. So I do think you're, you're, you're right. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, Dr. Shem, Ruth Shem was also able to provide some context around what does it feel like, you know, when we um, have to repeat that experience of putting ourselves out there than having somebody like poke at it, right? And you're bringing up something really powerful that I'm going to maybe have us think about us meaning, um, you know, the audience as well, for people who are doing peer work, and our certified peer specialist, and we have to, um, you know, write our notes um, for uh, Medicaid billing. That's one of the requirements when you're a certified peer specialist. Well, many do in many states. I think it's 43 states now that are billing Medicaid for peer services. One of the things I found when I was working with peers who, who weren't doing the Medicaid billing, but still had to write notes, is that the supervisors were saying, well, these notes are horrible. They just, wow, no, these are not going to, and they were doing the red marking thing. So I finally asked the the group of peers we were working with, sort of tell me about this experience of writing notes. What Mm. do you like about it? What don't you like about it? What's hard? What's easy? They were bringing out the DSM and trying to write it aligned with the DSM. They were doing all sorts of stuff, trying to get it right according to what the supervisors were marking up. And finally, they said, it's so scary for us because we're always being judged and our therapeutic relationships were being judged. Are we well? Are we well enough? Can we work? Can't we work? Everything is about a personal judgment. And then here we are writing something down and it goes into the mystery box to to the supervisor or somebody who then marks it up and gives it back. And it's a more of a, um, it's more judgment. So we actually had to totally switch around how we thought about writing the notes, teaching about writing the notes, doing circles of uh, uh, on on a not actual client writing, but creating you know fake clients, if you will, to write notes on, um, and then having circles of being able to give feedback to one another, um, encouraging people to use a th- thesaurus versus the DSM or a dictionary versus the. <laughs> DSM. And it was just really, we put the power in the hands of the people to say, this is how we want the experience to be. And so for peers too, I think there is this trauma that can happen in the uh, task of writing, especially when somebody else is going to read it. Yeah, I hear you. And, and, and I'll, this is a lesson again, I made that mistake once. And I'm never going to repeat it. And that is intentional. I, I am not going to repeat that mistake, <laughs> you know, and apologizing for the, uh, yeah. for the mistake I did make directly to the person. Yeah. But you learn from the mistake. And I think that's the, there you go. 
the beauty of, of mistakes, again, is if you were to continue at anybody, when one makes a mistake, I always say, well, yeah, you're human. Mistakes are supposed to happen, but learning is also supposed to happen from the mistake so that you grow. So you're all, we're always on this learning journey. And, um, you know, Pat, I'm, I'm so, so happy that we're colleagues or friends that I'm a certified personal medicine coach. I'm so excited mm-hmm. about that, uh, yeah. that uh, and that we've had this time to really chat through your, your work um, and the intentionality. I've never met anybody who is so incredibly intentional about the work. Um, I'm so glad you've shared your time with us today on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you, Karis. And, uh, you know, you're a leader for me, and I appreciate how gentle you are um, as you help bring me along, too. Oh, thanks so much, Pat. I really do appreciate that. And thank you so much also for joining us. And for our listeners, join in next week for another episode of Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And thanks so much for listening in.